for me in, in hospice, when I'm with a patient, you may no longer be able to show that you're the CEO and, or were a CEO at some point and knew all the numbers and the figures because now you can't dress yourself. You can't move. You know, that doesn't take your value away. Mm. That doesn't take who you are as a person away. That was part of your experience in life, but you're still just as valuable at this moment when somebody's feeding you, when you can no longer talk, even for um, our, our Alzheimer's patients, I will talk to them just like what, you know, if I know their background and I'll be asking them or speaking to them as if they can hear, because I believe that there's something inside where they still can, uh-huh. you still have value. And that's my job as a hospice chaplain is to value you at whatever state you're in. Yep. Powerful yeah. stuff. This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today we have a special guest zooming in from Atlanta. Laura, could you please introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Laura Bondura, and I'm a lead chaplain with Agape Hospice Care in Atlanta. So I grew up in Portland, Oregon. I lived there till I was about 24. And you know, I love, love the West Coast feel and um, just very relaxed, easygoing, accepting um, kind of an area. So that was, I grew up with, I always say, I grew up with a hippie mother. And uh <laughs> do uh, just she, she you know wanted us to have all kinds of experiences in many ways and I think Portland's good for that Portland is one of those places where you can just be you whatever you is and mm. I say that in this sense I really see that that tends to um, go over into my um, in, into my theology into how I deal with people um, just it, it gave me a great love and value of, of people of people, period. I'll just put it that way, of people, period. And uh, that's, to me, what Portland represents. What's your faith journey? Oh, my goodness. It's a a very eclectic journey. (laughs) So amazing. Yeah, I, um, so my my mom and grandmother were uh, Missouri Synod Lutherans. So I grew up, you know, going to, um, catechism, those kinds of things, um, believing that women couldn't be ordained, couldn't be, uh, you know, you could be a Sunday school teacher, which is wonderful, but you couldn't do an ordained path. Um, from there, I started going to like a, not a non-denominational church. Um, I studied for a little bit under the free Methodist thinking I was going to be ordained free Methodist. And ended up with my ordination from a full um, gospel, non-denominational um, background. So my journey to CPE was I was working for the military chaplaincy. 
um, as a religious education coordinator. Um, so I was, you know, just taking care of anything educationally from women's ministries to children's ministries, buying the books, keeping the chapel kind of, um, going, uh, as far as whatever the, whatever the chaplains or the chaplain assistants needed, um, I, you know, I would do that. It was there that one of the chaplains came and said, why are you not an active duty chaplain? I'd mm. like to send you to the schoolhouse. I had never thought of, um, never thought of chaplaincy. You know, I was watching it. I loved what they did. Um, but I had never thought of it for myself. And, uh, anyway, they just gave me such a passion, um, encouragement. They guided me through, um, you know, how to get my MDiv, uh, what chaplaincy looked like, what it may look like for me. And then, um, that's where my, yeah, I went into CPE and, when I went into CPE, I knew nothing about what CPE was. I was literally doing the check marks because I wanted to. And it's probably wrong to say that, but literally I was doing the check marks of, I want to be a military chaplain. This will be good. I need to get this done. I was really mm-hmm. in that, that mode of operation. And yeah. uh, so um, I did an extended unit. I did one unit first and I did not realize, honestly, I was emotionally shut down. I was, you know, just thinking military, get it done, get it done, get to the next level. (laughs) (laughs) Task oriented. Yeah. (laughs) Task oriented for sure. Um, So my first unit was very much, um, I guess, trying to get back in touch with my feelings and not just be this task oriented Mm. person. Um, It was, it was difficult. It really was. I think that's what CPE did for me was I didn't realize I was shut down emotionally or didn't know how to share because I always thought I'm warm, I'm friendly, I love people, but the transparency and the vulnerability was not there. So let me, you know, but going in then to my residency, um, just it began to shape me and help, you know, help me open up. And I think Working oncology for me was huge. That was, mm. I did not want to be in oncology. I was like, that's not the unit I want. I'm going to get in and get out. <laughs> and I ended up um, really falling in love with, um, with the role of chaplaincy in that time and space in people's lives. You know, just the, those moments of, for me, where I said, you know, we just, I, I felt like you see the veil of, of here and there um, is so thin and where people are vulnerable and they would open up. And, you know, when you watch other people open up, it allows you to open up. So that was a lot, that was life changing for me. Where was it in this journey that you uh, being initially Missouri Synod, initially Mm -hmm. a woman's role was relegated to, as you said, teaching Sunday school and running the, uh, the program, little the children's programs. Children's program, yeah. How does it, and where is it in this journey that all of a sudden you realize that women can be clergy, and they can be in a place of authority? Uh, I just wonder how that kind of moved you, and where was that in your, in this, or are you still struggling with it? No. Um, so again, you know, while I was working in the chapel corps, um, and. I'm watching, you know, I'm watching men and women work equally. I'm watching female chaplains. I'm watching chaplain assistants. 
a lot of that really started to, to change, you know, how I began to think. Um, and just being in, in uh, my Master's of Divinity program, I've, I felt the call of, of the Lord just, I want you to go to ordained ministry. And, you know, I kept, I kept checking myself, like, you know, am I thinking that? Am I bringing that on me? So it really, for me, was not an outside force in a sense of people saying, oh, you should be ordained. You should go forward. I just really began to feel this inner calling that wouldn't leave. And I just began to, you know, study more and study more and look at more. Um, and so it was an internal transition where I finally went, no, it really is okay. You know, I feel that for me, scripturally, I can stand on, on the word and say, <laughs> you know, women are created in the image as well. And, and yes, uh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So it was, that's a similar, was, similar story of how, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm considered a second career clergy person and, you know, I was struggling and wandering through the desert, let's using a biblical image, trying to find out what it is that God wanted me to do. And just like you, it was in seminary, it was during all of that uh, discernment time, uh, all the challenges that God puts in front of you. Right. <laughs> and what it is that, how it is you respond to it. And then that's when you find out if you're truly called, in my mind. And I, I sense that's what kind of happened with you. And, uh, you, know, it, you know, women are very, very influential now in ministry throughout the United States and probably throughout the world. And it's just good that you're uh, out here doing it in this chaplaincy. Yeah, it's been an amazing journey. And like you said, I think it's in those moments where where we're looking and searching and all of a sudden there'll be these paradigm shifts in our life and our thinking. And, and for me, it's, it was so nice. Like God's not in a box. Yep. Mm. Right. He's not in a exactly. box. And, yeah. Yeah. So Laura, you were doing your clinical pastoral education and you're working in the oncology unit and you're seeing people, you know, suffering from cancer. What did that trigger within you? And were there other patients that you connected with, especially with their story? Mm. You know, I think the stories that connected for me were more of a general, not necessarily one person's story, but in this sense, um, to, to sit there and, and, to, and to listen to everybody's story, how they're traveling to get to the hospital, how they're, what they do when they go home, the fatigue, how their life has changed. Um, all of those things, I think, just really brought me to center of what's important. What's important is today. What's important is the relationship that we have right now. That's what being in oncology taught me was the importance of, of now and the conversation you have with that person and the, the richness of what people will teach you from their journey. I began to see that, you know, I think I, I kind of went in while well, I'm, I'm the chaplain, I, chaplain, I'll have something to offer. What I found that I had to offer was silence. What I had to offer was listening. What I had to offer was um, maybe you retelling their story so that they could hear the strength that they have, that they maybe no longer could see in themselves. Mm. Um, it just became such an honor and a privilege to, um, 
to, to sit beside people who were going through going through life. I mean, that's the way to say it. It's, it's literally going through life in a way they never thought they'd have to. Mm. Um, I found that a privilege to be able to hear anybody's story. And I'm going to say in any level of chaplaincy, if somebody opens up their story to you, that's a privilege, right? Absolutely. It's a privilege. Those are the deep, the deep seeds and, and spirituality is held so close to people. You know, it's a place we don't necessarily want to share or open up with somebody we don't know. And sometimes it's hard enough with people we do know. Um, I think those are the things that just really began to shape and, and the passion I found for chaplaincy. And the same with, um, again, not being a chaplain in the military in any sense, but because I was in the, the office, you know, um, so many, um, you know, veterans coming in, um, and sharing their stories. So sharing their, their personal stories, it just, um, I don't know. I just found a sacredness in hearing. Exactly. (laughs) Well put. put. I mean, that's, um, that I believe is the goal of a chaplain. You know, where is it that these people touched you? And, and, and yes, there are individuals who touch us and, uh, they, uh, uh, I'm trying to bring up one in my mind now that really this, this, he was a World War II vet and got to meet him at his home and he had cancer and he was dying. And, you know, the family would talk about his outbursts and his, uh, his anxieties and things of that nature. And it really turned out, of course, during World War II, um, he had a PTSD type moment that has lived with him for his entire life after being in the war. And he told me about that story. And that was an incredible story where he talked about, and he was in tears like it happened just yesterday of this, of this very dear friend of his who was the, you know, in the underbelly of the tra- of the plane in the, uh, cause he was small and he was in the turret and he was, you know, coming home from a mission and it, and the landing gear had been shot out from underneath the plane. And of course they landed and of course he was killed. And he just, he just lost it. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about the, 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 as you said, the sacredness of that moment. And I, I mean, I still think about it today and that happened many years ago. One thing, one reason the military and military chaplaincy or is so important to me is my ex-husband retired after uh, 24 years in the Air Force. And learning about PTSD firsthand and what it looked like, watching um, depression, you know, sneak in where it had been there, it had been there, but when you retire, all of a sudden time and space kind of collide and you have time to think when you didn't have time to think before of um, things you've been through. And so... Um, watching, and and I know that I would have permission to share this story. So let me say that, um, watching him go, what I would say from an officer and a gentleman, my best friend who was always saying, you know, what, what do you want to do next? You know, you want to be an EMT? Great. I went and did that. You want to go to seminary? Great. Do that. 
to um, to somebody I didn't know, to somebody who mm. I became the enemy, and um, who he, you know, needed to in his mind protect himself from. Right. So if you're the enemy, then even in your own home, you're the enemy. Mm. And um, I began to. Um, take on things and understand things that I never had before, such as, um, you know, paranoia begins to, to sneak in for our veterans um, because they're so used to being on alert, be on call, um, heightened senses. And so I remember, you know, he'd, he'd be, we'd be sitting out on the porch and he'd be like, well, Blackhawk's coming. And I'd say, there's, there's not a helicopter in the sky. Well, over the years, I, you know, I can now tell you, oh, a Blackhawk's coming before I can see it. Or, you know, oh, that's a life flight. That's not Blackhawk. You know, it's not a Blackhawk. Those types of things um, kind of became the norm in our household. And so watching him begin to suffer more and more with um, mental health issues and then begin to drown them with alcohol and and painkillers and, and all the things that come to your door through, um, through the VA, <laughs> you mm, know, mm. It, it, it's a life changer, obviously for him. Um, but let me, it, it just, it changed my view and what I think because of going through that experience, by the time I worked in the chapel corps, what became meaningful is here. I had no credentials at that time. I was working religious education but I would have men who had just come back from deployments come and sit in my office and share. I just lost two guys out there or, um, you know, I witnessed this or I'm so angry. I can't sleep at night and I can, I don't know how to come home and relate to my wife. See, these were all things that I had gone through. Those are the things that became meaningful is watching and listening to them and having a, a good friend of mine. Um, I always, he would come in my office. He was the NCO, NCOIC, so the top enlisted um, um, person in the chapel corps. And he'd come in my office and he'd sit down and he'd cry and he'd share his story. And then he'd get up and say, thank you. And I didn't do anything but listen. But that, those are the personal things. Let me say that. Going through it myself, watching... Um, my husband, who was, again, an officer, a gentleman, capable, smart, um, turned into somebody I didn't know, and I became the enemy, was difficult. How did that affect the relationship? Oh, well, it, it affected to the point that, you know, I definitely had, I had to leave, and we had to divorce. Um, he he went back in his mind to, to Vietnam. So, um, you know, you back to wearing his BDUs from Vietnam and his combat boots, uh, decorating the house would look like a hooch. Um, and you know, back then I kept thinking, gosh, this is so odd. This was early two thousands. Um, and so, you know, at that point we still weren't really hearing a lot about PTSD in the mainstream. Um, and in the air force, you didn't always hear, um, as far as spouses. So I really thought this was something odd that was happening to us. Mm. Years later, 2015, I started working at Fort Benning for the army and 
to be honest, it was the most difficult time. I think that's kind of when I broke down um, emotionally because I was able now to identify with the wives who so many of their husbands were in infantry. Mm. And I finally had a space where people were like, no, this is what we go through all the time. The abuse that becomes rampant in our homes, the, um, the anger, the paranoia. And to watch, when you're watching these men who, I want to say in a sense, are, are fighting for their lives and they're doing an amazing job because they get up every day and they go to work and they're, they're being deployed and they're being trained and they're, they're, they're pressed at every level. Um, it is, it's amazing and it's heartbreaking all at the same time. Mm. And so then for me was, where are we, where am I in my spiritual journey, in chaplaincy, in my desire to go on in chaplaincy? How do I, how do you not put, you, there's no band-aid that says this scripture is going to heal what you just saw when the bomb went off and body parts just started flying everywhere. There's no mm. scripture that just automatically heals that there's scripture that heals don't get me wrong but there's um just what i want to say that i think that became my passion is to listen that's what i found heals Uh, we, we say it in hospice we say it in other things but to be able to have somebody open up about a story that is so dear because death dying war conflict, whatever we want to call it, puts another aspect on somebody's soul Mm. and the moral injury that we don't discuss the, um, the feeling of, you know, the disassociation of my soul is over here. My body's here and I'm functioning, Mm. but my soul's here. How do I bring those two back? Um, that's really where a lot of my passion lies. So, right. It's the deep work. And I think that is a piece of chaplaincy that we're called to is this deep work, but deep spiritual work of any kind is very difficult. It is. And yeah, it's very difficult. And you've done amazing, yeah. you know, um, to take that pain, you know, of, of being a spouse uh, of someone that you love, go through this, and then the women that you've interacted with, interacted with at the best. So mm-hmm. taking all those pain, I think it's been a powerful preparation for you as a therapist, you know, uh, to go through these things, I think you become like a wounded healer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Isn't that the choice, I think, that we, for me, let me say for me, is I just remember thinking I do have a choice. What I want, is, what I feel and what I want is just to break down. I remember laying on a hardwood floor when it was all over and just crying and crying and crying and saying, I don't know how my heart will ever heal from this. And then, but the other piece was I can lay here and keep like this, or I can get up and show my children at the time. I have uh, four young children at home that we, we can keep going. I don't know how we're going to keep going. And I think that's the reality sometimes maybe, you know, we don't know how We, we don't have answers. These are the pieces that, all I know is I needed to get up the next day and you get up and do what you can the next day. Mm. Um, and isn't that in, in hospice or anything else it, we have today. Mm. So we look at, for me, that has kind of been my thing today. What is today going to look like? How can I make, I can have the best of times and the worst of times 
and they happen simultaneously. Mm. How, when we're sitting with someone who is dying, find those best of times in the moments, in the memories, and at the same time be in the worst of times. And I know for myself, you know, that's been a continual walk. Um, I kind of want to weave another little story in there. Just here's all of this going on. Uh, you know, as let's say the PTSD type of things happening. At the same time, I had been a foster care for about, I don't know, eight, a foster parent for about eight years. And I had given up my license because I could see, you know, this was, this isn't something I'm going to be able to continue to do. I have to figure out my next step. But I got a call and um, one night and the social worker says, hey, can you pick up this little, this little baby? He's five months old. Maybe he's going to live four days. You know, I just need you to do terminal care. That's all you're doing. And I remember thinking, God, this is really bad timing. But okay, you know, I said four days. I have four days. I can do that. So I go to the air base. I pick up the baby from the hospital. And um, five months old, he is, he has Williams syndrome. And uh, so he has a lot of cardiovascular issues. He's had a um, an aortic patch by this time. He's on high blood pressure medication. He's on oxygen full time. And not only that, he had been beaten. So he had all of his ribs were fractured, two leg fractures, over 100 retinal hemorrhages and four cranial fractures. So here in the midst of everything that's happening at my house, I go pick up this baby. And I remember rocking him that first night. And as I was rocking him, nobody had known, nobody in my family, nobody in our life we owned, um, uh, martial arts schools at the time were teaching on base, you know, so I was still playing the role. Nobody knew that I had, had been abused or was being abused. I pick up this little baby and I'm rocking him that night thinking he's got four or five days to live. And I just remember at that moment was, you understand. I just held him and I said, you understand, you understand fear, you understand pain you understand all of this. And it was really at that moment where I felt my heart open up again. Because when you're in the midst of abuse and everything else, what do you do? You shut down and you're lying. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to everybody else. And um, here, this, this little helpless baby, I was like, that is what I feel God used in my life uh -huh. to begin to heal my, you know, my pain. And let me say, not to he he made it past four days. He, um, it's maybe five years old. We, he was on uh, hospice. He made it, quote unquote, out of hospice. Um, and he's 16 years old. We, we've been through many surgeries. We're getting ready to go into another major surgery next month. But it is amazing. Again, I, I, I loop that back. The best of times and the worst of times. And we never know who will come into our life. A child, an adult. Uh, a dream, a vision, I don't, TV. But there is something that can come in and begin to heal in the worst moments. And I think that's always my passion is, Lord, let me be a conduit in some way that there's, there's hope. There's hope in the midst of what hurts. We'll take a little break and then we'll be back right after that. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, 
Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. Welcome back. This is Alabama, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Before the break, we're continuing our conversation with Laura. Laura, you've been through so much in your life, uh, as our listeners can tell, so much abuse, so much challenges, and you've put all that together now to work as a hospice chaplain. What is it about a hospice chaplaincy work that makes it such a special work for you? For, for me, I think what makes hospice so special is honestly the sacredness of the moment. It is being in um, a room with a patient and the family when there's no answers, humanly speaking. There's never, you know, there's good words, but not the right word in a sense. And yet you stand there in this silence or in this moment and you feel the transcendence, the, the presence of here and there, and it is real. And to be with family members and, and individuals and to experience that moment together is so sacred. And I'm not sure that there's any other time in life. I, what, I like to, we, what I like to say is we go from life to life. And to be at that sector from this life to the next life is, is like no other. And I don't think if, if you haven't been there, if you haven't experienced that, if you haven't seen um, people's countenance change or a spirit leave, so to speak, that is, is an amazing moment. And it's, it's an amazing moment in so many cases that ends up being peaceful um, the trauma that was there prior, the fear that was there prior for family and for the person becomes peaceful. And I, I think that for me is something that is incredibly special. But I'm just wondering how you're dealing with the frustrations of today with COVID and isolation and fear of your staff getting it. I mean, Georgia's a, Georgia's been a pretty hot spot and Atlanta has spot. been, Atlanta has been too. Mm-hmm. Uh, how is this being handled with your staff and with you as a matter of fact? Uh, well, it's a multi-tiered question, right? <laughs> Not meaning to be, but if you want to make it that way, yeah, just, you know, <laughs> sure. So um, let me just say individually, I think I, I'm definitely an extroverted personality in a lot of ways. Um, so I think that the lack of contact of the, and for the chaplains, what I hear is when we can't go out and see people, we can't get into the facilities. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's that, uh, that's the hard piece is, is not having that physical human contact. So we're making it like any hospice probably right now. You're making so many calls to the families, great contact as far as talking to families, but not being able to see patients is, is very wearing. Um, 
very, I mean, not only isolating for them, it's isolating for us. And I find that for myself, you know, um, I think for me, I'm finding cookies, you know, I, I, and I'm really, (laughs) in a sense, you know, I'm going to things that maybe before I was working out or doing things, I'm, I'm realizing there is a slow decline into, Oh gosh, I can't go anywhere. I'm going to sit home and eat this candy bar tonight. If I'm going to be real, you know, um, and I'm seeing, I'm, I definitely see that with the staff as well. They're calling and saying, I can't take the isolation. What I find that we struggle with too is not only other, sometimes the families are getting in, but I can't tell you how many countless people we've had pass away that no family, no chaplain, and no nurse could be in there. Exactly. Those, those are the ones that are, um, again, just seeing the wear on, on each individual chaplain. Um, can I just I want to tell a neat story, though. You know, these types of times make us think outside of the box. I had a chaplain the other day. Um, so neat. He, they needed a, they needed a priest. So he, he called the priest, the priest stayed at his parish. He called the family members. He had the, the nurse go in with the, um, with the patient, um, and did a zoom call. So the, the, the priest was able to do the last rites. The family were able to speak with the patient. Um, those types of things, that's what I'm seeing we're going to. My fear is how long are we going to be in that? Because even though we can do that, it was nice for the family to be able to see the priest and see the patient. It's still virtual. That's right. Exactly. It's still virtual. We're losing, the, you know. Losing the hands-on. The hands-on. Yeah. But it is, it is, it is interesting times. We've certainly had, oh my goodness, chaplains come down with COVID. We've had, you know. Many uh-huh. chaplains um, quarantined over the course of these last few months. Um, so a lot of stress. You know, one, uh, one of my chaplains, she says, I had to, she says, once I was, um, she was just exposed. She didn't test positive. But, she, you know, for that moment, you don't know. And she's like, all of a sudden, I had to talk to my kids if I don't make it, if I can't, you know. And also, so having the, the real conversation of if I did get it, and I died from it, what happens at home. But she said also, she said, Laura, I had to say, is this really what I want to do? Is this what I feel called to do? And she said, I realized at that moment that even with the possibility of becoming COVID positive, this is my calling, which I thought was really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, So as a lead chaplain, do you still make visits? I do occasionally. Not as much as I'd like. I realize we need to, I need to be out there as well and just have that. Um, so <laughs> I do miss, I do miss that part. Let me see. We've been growing so much. Um, I'm doing just a lot of training right now. I think in the, it, so it's interesting for us in the midst of this crisis where so many things are, um, you know, shutting down or slowing down. I think we've hired five new chaplains since March. Um, and our census is is booming. So it has been this tumultuous going into COVID, having everything stop as we know it, trying to figure out how to see people, how to reach out, how to be there and have growth at the same time. Mm-hmm. Exponential growth. It has been a very um, stressful, taxing 
six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, last week, we interviewed Ranshin Bounds. She wrote the book, uh, Love and Fear, Stories from a Hospice Chaplain. Mm-hmm. And, this, and as, uh, during the interview, she shared something. What I, I like it because it asked the question, what does it mean to help? She told the story of, you know, getting a card and, you know, the card is struggling to adjust with her and her friends coming in. Uh, they don't know how, they would love to help, but they don't know how to help. And they're coming up with this different, have you tried this? Have you tried this? Have you tried <laughs> so many things? But that's not what she needs. But you've been through uh, tremendous experiences and somebody would come to you and say, how can you help people, you know, who are, you know, who are dealing with um, PTSD, uh, families who are dealing with P- PTSD at this time? Because you've been through that. Mm-hmm. You know some of the challenges those families go through. And what does it mean to help in that context? Uh, it's 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 going to sound maybe too simple, but to be honest, I still go back to, for me and what I find from other people, um, especially in my case, let's just say, uh, you know, women or spouses, it's like, hear my story. This is... To be, to be able to hear and to not be judged, mm. right? Mm. Um, to be able to, uh, I'll, I'll give you a personal story. So for me, with all the, the different traumas, um, from again, my, my husband's suffering from son being very medically fragile to, um, you know, and just the trauma that person. In 2015, my daughter was picked up by a sex trafficker here in Atlanta. I had just moved here, maybe been here six months. And that was devastating to me. Um, and of, of course to her, but it was dev- a devastating experience and it didn't quote unquote turn out the way I thought it would when she came home. I thought everything would be okay and it, and it just hasn't been. Hmm. I was speaking to um, a friend of mine and she, she's working on her PhD. She's a, a social worker and now this is years. This is five years later, right? And I have felt this heaviness for five years, praying through it, exercising through it, you know, trying to do whatever, you know, all the good self-help, talking mm-hmm. to other people. But, you know, she, I, I brought up the, the issue of sex trafficking with her. And she said, wait a minute. She said, first of all, I didn't know that part of your story. And she says, you've been through so much trauma. And for whatever reason, when she identified for me without me having to say that word, but when she said, you've been through so much trauma, all of a sudden that heaviness of five years that I could not figure out how to relieve, how to get rid of, it was that identification. She could see me. She could see me. Yes, it's trauma. It wasn't just trauma for them. Certainly it was trauma for my daughter. Certainly it's trauma for my ex-husband. Um, it's, it's trauma, mm-hmm. but there was trauma for me too. And I don't think I'd ever been able to identify because I've been trying in my mind, I want to help. I want to care. I want to be there. I want to support. I want to listen. I, you know, so I would say that, you know, for others, mm-hmm. sometimes just let them, 
we aren't judging. We're not putting a label. She didn't put a label on it. Mm. She said, you've been through trauma. It was healing, healing, healing. I feel for the first, like I said, for the first time in five years, I felt there's healing. Yeah, people like to judge. That that is the truth. And they like to judge. When you're in that judgmental mode, it's really hard to help. Very much so. And especially when you're dealing with um, mil- issues of military service, right? What is one thing that people loved at? Well, did you kill people? What? You can you know, why would you ask that? Military members are carrying a heavy burden of their job responsibility, right? Um, Somebody's child has been sex trafficked. You know, it's, well, you you must not be a good enough parent. Well, how did that happen? How could you let that happen? You know, you're like, I didn't let that happen. You know, so when we judge, and same thing in hospice, right? We can judge. Oh, well, you have, you have, you smoke, you have lung cancer. That's why you're here. You know, it no longer matters why we're somewhere. Mm. It's can we touch the heart or be alongside the heart of that person? It doesn't matter why or how we got there. Mm. The point is, is here we are, and I just need somebody to walk alongside me and hear me. For someone who says that they, they struggle with this, I understand that. I mean, that, that, that's something you learn to, learn to trust about yourself, to go in there and be willing to share a piece of yourself. Yeah. You're not going to share everything, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, there you go, and you you spend one little thing. You say one little thing, a huge thing, but it was a little thing. You know, I didn't know that about you, and you know, mm-hmm. that yeah. is the point of chaplaincy. I see a very right. big point of chaplaincy, especially under the hospice end of the chaplaincy yeah. realm, uh, because. As you, as, you, as you have noted already about the, the sacredness of those moments that you're with a, a patient and they can just be themselves with you and they might say something that they've never told anybody else. Right. And just like that person did for you. Mm-hmm. So what is your philosophy of care? I had a, a gentleman... Uh, just a retired army veteran. And he said to me, he was in one of my seminary classes and he said, you know, he says, when I see you and, and just how you respond to stuff, he said, you're a warrior priestess. And I, you know, I love that. I said that to me was like, wow, I want to be that. (laughs) You know, really, it was a, it was a true honor. It really was. Um, because to me, um, and, and maybe, you know, again, in philosophy of care, but going to the warrior priestess, I believe God is a warrior. You know, the, the word speaks of him being a warrior God. And I don't think we pull, I don't hear that often, you know, when people are speaking. But I love the fact in, for, for my faith tradition that I serve a warrior God. And when I say warrior, that doesn't mean he's out you know, tearing everybody down. It's the warrior spirit that says, in spite of what happened, I'm going to get up because I have another day. So as long as I have another day, I got to get up and keep going. And again, sometimes that keep going, don't get me wrong, is, is, is I just got up out of bed because I feel depressed today, but I got up, you know, and sometimes it's moving on to that great big feet. Um, 
And as far as care, yeah, compassion is huge. And I would say the other word for me in is, is value. Mm. It is so, I feel in a world that our value is often um, prejudged. It can mm. be prejudged because you're a woman, you shouldn't be ordained. Mm. Your, um, you know, our ethnicity, our whatever, somewhere, somewhere along the way, somebody has told us we're not valuable. You're not good enough for this group. You're whatever. For me in, in hospice, when I'm with a patient, you may no longer be able to show that you're the CEO and, or were a CEO at some point and knew all the numbers and the figures because now you can't dress yourself. You can't move. You know, that doesn't take your value away. Mm. That doesn't take who you are as a person away. That was part of your experience in life, but you're still just as valuable at this moment when somebody's feeding you, when you can no longer talk, even for um, our, our Alzheimer's patients, I will talk to them just like what, you know, if I know their background and I'll be asking them or speaking to them as if they can hear because I believe that there's something inside where they still can. Uh-huh. You still have value. And that's my job as a hospice chaplain is to value you at whatever state you're in. Yep. Powerful yeah. stuff. That's powerful. Any final thoughts or anything that you wanted to say and and have not said? Well, my final thoughts would just be a huge thank you for even uh, having me here. And um, it's it's an honor. Uh, It's a real honor, and I appreciate it. Thank you, ma'am. Laura, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Laura Bondron. Thank you for listening. Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.